Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of the murder and dismemberment of a child. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1867, the small farm town of Alton was the picture of a quaint, peaceful town in the English countryside. It was the kind of place where children ran free, playing near the streams and meadows, without concerns for their safety. In fact, illegal activity was shockingly low. None of the townspeople could remember any serious crime taking place in their lifetime. This might have been because Alton was such a small town and one with an extremely loyal community. Neighbors waved hello and looked out for one another. Everyone knew each other's business, and word also spread quickly. If someone new came to town, the community took notice. So when a strange man in a tall hat was seen wandering the hop fields, people immediately made a note of him. And when he was seen speaking and playing with children, they gossiped. They watched the man suspiciously but they didn't rush to act. As long as he didn't cause any trouble, he'd be fine. After all, a stranger was just a neighbor they hadn't met yet, even if he was odd. So when three young girls went out into the fields to play, they assumed that they had nothing to fear. But this day would mark the end of that idyllic fantasy. In a single moment, the peaceful town of Alton would become synonymous with murder, and unspeakable violence. And the close-knit community would have to decide how to contend with a killer in their midst. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. Today, we're exploring the 1867 murder of Fanny Adams. In this week's one-part episode, we'll cover the young girl's disappearance, the town's reaction, and the intriguing case of Fanny's killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. August 24th, 1867 was a sunny day in Alton. Mrs. Harriet Adams wiped a bead of sweat from her brow as she cleaned her kitchen. The Saturday afternoon had been quieter than usual, especially for a house often bustling with six children. Her youngest, one-year-old Lily, napped in another room. Meanwhile, her other daughters, eight-year-old Fanny and seven-year-old Lizzie, were out playing in the meadows. Harriet knew the girls should be coming home for dinner soon. The meadows were only 400 yards from the Adams' cottage. But as dinner quickly approached, Harriet saw no sign of the two girls. Perhaps she tried to wave away her concern, certain that it was nothing more than a mother's worry. But whatever thoughts she had were interrupted when her neighbor, Jane Gardner, burst through the front door. Harriet, you must come quickly. It's Fanny. What about Fanny? She's with Lizzie and their little friend, Minnie. No, I just ran into Lizzie and Minnie outside. Fanny's been taken. What? 
The two women ran outside where they found Lizzie and Minnie. Harriet ordered Lizzie to wait in the house and told Minnie to come with them. Harriet needed to know exactly where the girls had been playing. Minnie, only eight years old herself, led them through nearby meadows. They approached a field where hot plants, supported by poles, grew tall. A short, slender man appeared from behind a gate. He wore a tall hat and a black coat. Harriet asked Minnie if that was the man who had taken Fanny. Minnie nodded. Harriet and Jane ran to confront him. You! What have you done with my daughter? I'm afraid you'll have to be more specific. Minnie just told us that you were the one who took Fanny. Oh, hello, Minnie. It's great to see you again. Don't you talk to her. Where is my daughter? I'm afraid I don't know. I did take Fanny for a bit to pick some berries, but then I gave her some money to buy sweets with her friends. We went our separate ways. Liar. We ought to get the police. You're welcome to it. Should you need me any further, I'll be at the office of Mr. Clement, the solicitor. I clerk for him. The gentleman's unbothered manner, coupled with his sophisticated dress, gave the women pause. He had freely admitted to meeting Fanny earlier and that he had been alone with her. Surely a man with a guilty conscience wouldn't be so cool in the face of confrontation. Harriet and Jane decided to head back to town in the hopes that Fanny might still show up. The next two hours passed slowly. The sun began to set, and there was still no sign of Fanny. A pit formed in Harriet's stomach. She wished her husband George were there, but he was off playing cricket and wouldn't be home until later. At seven o'clock, Harriet got tired of waiting, so she gathered a group of neighbors to form a search party. The small community of Alton banded together and went out into the meadows and hop fields. They were determined to find sweet Fanny Adams soon. After all, the light was beginning to fade, and the young girl should be home before dark. Meanwhile, across town, two solicitor's clerks were sharing a drink at the Swan Tavern. One of them was Frederick Baker, the gentleman Harriet and Jane had seen in the hop fields. His junior colleague, Maurice Biddle, eyed him curiously. Are you all right, Baker? You've been in and out of the office all day, and I don't mean to be crass, but that's hardly your first drink. Did you hear that a little girl is missing? Uh, Oh, uh, no. What happened? I couldn't say, but it will be very awkward for me if the child is murdered. Why is that? I was last seen with her. I see. I think I'll leave town on Monday, just to be safe. Uh, Where will you go? And what will you do for work? I suppose I could become a butcher. That's not funny, Baker. I have to say, I I don't understand how you can be so calm about this. Simple. I didn't do it. Let's get back to the office. I have some work to finish up. Frederick Baker quickly downed the rest of his drink and stood to go. Biddle shook his head, still flummoxed by his co-worker's behavior. But without saying anything else, he too pushed back his chair to leave. Back in the fields, the townspeople were still searching for Fanny in the dwindling light. They spread out and scanned the meadow, looking for any sign of the missing girl. At 
At some point, James Gates, one of the Adams' neighbors, stumbled upon something strange. It was a small piece of cloth. When Gates picked it up, he noticed it was sticky with dirt and blood. Its edges were torn, like it had been ripped. Gates immediately thought of the young girl's dress. He noticed that the hop field next to him was full of tall sprouts and hedges. It could be the perfect place to hide a body. Gates took a shaky breath, then he stepped into the field, weaving through stands of hops. He spotted something on the ground between two coals. He inched closer and made a startling discovery. Fanny Adams' severed head. Coming up, the crime scene grows more disturbing. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history. A vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file, others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On August 24th, 1867, the town of Alton, England, was searching for eight-year-old Fanny Adams, and a neighbor named James Gates stumbled across her severed head. Gates's blood ran cold as he realized that the left side of her mouth had been cut all the way up to her temple. Her right ear had been removed, and her eyes had been gouged out. Gates screamed for help, Neighbors ran to join him, horrified when they saw what remained of the young girl. A messenger ran to the Adams' home to deliver the terrible news to Harriet. Upon hearing about the discovery, it was as if the world had opened under Harriet's feet. Her knees buckled, and she struggled to steady herself on the kitchen table. When her mind cleared, Harriet realized with a sudden urgency that she had to tell her husband... But that burst of energy only took her so far. As she ran out her front door, she collapsed again, her grief completely overtaking her. George Adams was tired and sweaty from a day of playing cricket. But when he heard of his daughter's gruesome fate, rage and vigor boiled inside of him. George rushed home to his wife, but he didn't stay long. He grabbed a shotgun, burst back into the night, and headed towards the hop field. Blinded by anger, George assumed the mysterious clerk might still be stalking the area. He was sure that the strange newcomer was to blame, and he wanted to kill the man himself. Out of my way! I'm going to find that monster, and I'm going to kill him! Don't do this, George! Put away the gun! He killed her! He killed her, and he... he tore her apart! I know, I know. But you're not a murderer like him. You've got to let the police handle this. 
my little girl. He killed my little girl. George's tirade was short-lived as he fell to the ground sobbing. While the reality of this tragedy washed over him, the people of Alton searched for the rest of Fanny's remains. The news spread across town. It even reached the solicitor's office, where Baker, Biddle, and a few other clerks were still working well into the evening. Dear God, Baker! I say you've killed a young girl! That sounds very bad for me. So you did do it? No, I'm perfectly innocent. Well, don't be so calm about it. I know you're prone to eccentricity, Baker, but even you must take this seriously. I'm very serious. If you're innocent, you ought to go to the police and clear things up. Why should I go? If the police want me, they can come find me themselves. And in fact, Baker was right, because just then, the town superintendent, William Cheney, walked into the office. I'm looking for Frederick Baker. That's me. Right. You're under arrest for the murder of Fanny Adams. Well, sir, I'm happy to go with you and sort this out. However, I must protest that I'm perfectly innocent. We'll see about that. So on the evening of August 24th, 1867, Frederick Baker was taken into custody. But for the people of Alton, an arrest wasn't nearly enough. No, they wanted retribution, revenge. This close-knit community wouldn't rest until Frederick Baker paid for what he did. So as Superintendent William Cheney led Baker to the police station, the people of Alton gathered in the streets to watch him pass. The citizens shouted and jeered at Baker. Word had spread quickly about Fanny's horrible death, and virtually everyone had already decided that this stranger was guilty. Eventually, Cheney brought Baker into the police station, and the policeman's work really began. Cheney started searching and questioning Baker. And as he did, the officer found piece after piece of damning evidence. This your knife? I'd say it's safe to assume so, since you just found it on my person. Care to explain why there's blood on the handle? I suppose I didn't wash it properly. Did you see Fanny and her friends earlier today? Did you give them money? I did. I'm in the habit of giving money to children when I take my strolls. And your trousers are wet. I'm in the habit of stepping into water when I take my strolls. And the blood on your shirt cuffs. Right. This is looking quite bad for you, Mr. Baker. I did not kill that girl. A few drops of blood won't hang me, will they? After this search, Cheney led Baker to a cell where he would remain in custody. And while the young solicitor sat alone with his thoughts, the townspeople of Alton continued their search in the fields. Throughout the night, And into the next morning, the citizens of Alton scoured the meadows, and they did find Fanny Adams, little by little, piece by mutilated piece. Her eyes were discovered in a nearby river. Her left foot was in a clover field. Her torso and pelvis had been carved open and emptied. Her heart was found in a field, and her lungs were hidden under a hedge. 
One neighbor discovered a hefty stone with a piece of her scalp attached. As each piece was found, it was placed into a large wooden trunk. On Sunday, August 25th, the trunk was taken to Dr. Lewis Leslie at the Alton Police Station. There, he began the grisly task of cataloging the girl's mangled body parts and trying to assess what exactly had been done to her. After examining both the severed head and the rock, he determined that Fanny had been bludgeoned to death with one quick strike. Once she was dead, the murderer tore her apart with a sharp instrument. Dr. Leslie arranged Fanny in his best approximation of her body. Looking down at the ghoulish sight, he was at a loss for words. In all Dr. Leslie's years of medicine, he'd never seen anything like this. He shivered at what he had to do next. But it was a matter of procedure. The investigation couldn't move forward until Fanny's body was identified by a family member. So George Adams was called down to the station to bear the gruesome task. Thank you for coming down here, George. I wish I didn't have to do this. Whatever it takes. Right. Just... Brace yourself. Oh, dear God. My little girl. What did that monster do to you? George Adams, can you confirm that this is your daughter, Fanny Adams? George, I need you to say yes or no. Yes. Yes, that's her. That's Fanny. After George identified his daughter's body, the police charged Baker with murder. The Alton community cried for his head. The next day, Monday, August 26th, Superintendent William Cheney searched Baker's office for evidence. Sitting right on the clerk's desk was his diary with an entry from the night of the murder. Cheney hurried back to the police station to confront Baker with these findings. Sure you don't want to confess? Why would I do that? I'm innocent. I found your diary, Baker. Care to read the entry from August 24th? It's a short one. The 24th of August. Killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. Do you still say you're innocent? Of course. I didn't mean that I killed a young girl. I was drunk. I meant that a little girl had been killed. You're infuriating, Baker. Do you have any idea how bad this looks for you? Any rational man would be troubled by this. I wish I could see what was going on inside your head. Believe me, you don't. The following evening, there was a coroner's inquest at the Duke's Head Inn. Baker sat, unfazed as ever, as testimony railed against him. Dr. Lewis Leslie gave his report of Fanny's remains, recounting the horrific nature of the young girl's dismemberment. Maurice Biddle, Baker's colleague, had been brought in by police to testify since he had been seen drinking with Baker that night. Biddle attested that he had seen Baker going in and out of the office and that he had been drinking. He even shared the tasteless butcher joke that Baker had made. Perhaps Baker's only victory was when Minnie, Fanny's friend who had been playing with her, took the stand. 
The young girl was so overwhelmed by the whole ordeal that she failed to identify Baker as the man who had played with them on that terrible afternoon. In spite of this minor shortcoming, the coroner's jury was convinced of Baker's guilt. They passed down their verdict. Fanny Adams had died by injuries willfully inflicted by Frederick Baker. They felt they had enough evidence to take him to court. Baker didn't even blink. He stood to leave when beckoned by the police, but outside the Duke's head in, an angry crowd had gathered. Monster! You come into our town a stranger and show yourself to be the devil! Baker balked at the crowd of angry townspeople. Superintendent Cheney noticed the man's change of expression and decided to offer a jab of his own. What's wrong, Baker? Are your feathers finally getting ruffled? What is this? Why are they here? Oh, that's what happens when an outsider moves to Alton and then kills a little girl. Make them go away. Keep me safe. You're supposed to keep me safe. Yeah, yeah, we'll do what we can. You still have to stand trial. Police officers moved Baker to safety, and as time passed, his calm demeanor began to crack and shatter apart. He pulled at his hair, the muffled noise of the crowd pounding in his ears. Stop crying. Make them stop crying. Make them stop! Baker was visibly shaken. Gone was his appearance of indifference. Something had shifted within him. Baker's trial would take place at the next Winchester Assizes, an intermittent meeting of judges to preside over criminal cases. Months went by and word of the horrifying murder spread across England. By the time the trial began on December 5th, 1867, Frederick Baker was known throughout the country. Newspapers sweatily covered the story of the murdered child and her villainous killer. The trial was quickly becoming something of a legend, a historic event that everyone wanted to witness for themselves. December 5th was tense at the courthouse as a massive crowd of angry citizens struggled for a spot in the Great Hall. Both inside and outside the building, people caused a raucous commotion. They shouted, chanted, shook the walls, and threw stones at the police protecting Baker. By this point, the name Baker had become synonymous with evil. The small, quiet town of Alton had become a community on the verge of an all-out riot. If the court did not provide them with justice, it seemed they would try and take it themselves. Coming up, the trial reveals Baker's dark past and throws his guilt into question. Now, back to the story. On December 5th, 1867, Frederick Baker went to trial for the murder of Fanny Adams. All of Alton, with angry citizens from across England, gathered at the courthouse to express their fury. They fought with police. They wanted Baker turned over to them. Stones were thrown, batons were swung. The trial was delayed. Had it not been for the judge intervening, it may not have happened at all. Order, I say! 
I understand there is a good deal of public outrage surrounding this case, but the jury and myself must hear the evidence. If we cannot conduct ourselves in an orderly manner, if we cannot have a proper trial, then there will not be a trial. Anyone disturbing the proceedings will be locked up. So once again, I ask for order. As the trial began, Baker took sharp, shallow breaths in his seat. Try as he might, he couldn't maintain his composure. The crowd's noise, the palpable anger. It was too much. Any calm facade had been shattered. He sat before the judge as a deeply troubled man. The prosecution stood first. They laid out the evidence that had been seen before. Baker's diary entry, the bloody knife, his wet trousers, the blood stains on his shirt. Then they brought their witnesses. These were people from all over town who had been touched by the case and felt certain that Baker was guilty. I saw Baker wandering through the fields. He smelled like liquor. I heard a girl crying but thought they were playing. We all went searching and I found her eye floating there. Two of the prosecution's key witnesses were children. The first was Minnie, the friend who had been with Fanny. Just as before, she was nervous and shy before the crowd. But at the prosecution's urging, she recounted how Baker had given her and Lizzie money and then picked up Fanny and left. The second child was a new witness, seven-year-old Alfred Vince. He claimed to have seen Baker washing blood from his hands in a stream near the hop fields. Alfred ran to tell his mother, but she elected not to go to the authorities. Apparently, she didn't want the trouble. However, Alfred explained that two months after the coroner's inquest, his mother had let her story slip in a tavern. Word spread and she was encouraged to come forward. Seeing children anxiously take the stand reminded the crowd of the innocent life that had been so viciously taken. The trial was an emotional one, with sniffles regularly heard among the crowd. And all the while, a sharp feeling of hatred crept its way toward Baker. After all their witnesses had been called, the prosecution rested. Hearing such emotional testimony was hard for spectators to imagine how the defense team could possibly turn the trial in their favor. It seemed like an open and shut case. But on the following day, Friday, December 6th, defense attorney Carter stood to make his case. The lawyer certainly had his work cut out for him, but Carter had a plan, a two-pronged defense. First, Carter challenged the evidence laid against Frederick Baker. In particular, he called out the reliance on the eyewitness accounts of children. Children, he argued, who were far too easily swayed by their parents or the prosecution. None of the so-called evidence, he argued, actually proved that Baker had been responsible for Fanny's death. The knife was too small to cut up a body. There was no motive. The blood could have come from a nosebleed. Then, he laid out the second, much more thorough prong of his defense. If you're still not convinced of Mr. Baker's innocence, then allow me to put this before you. If Mr. Baker committed this horrible act, then it was not from a place of malice or murderous intent. Rather, it was a bout of insanity. 
Mr. Baker is prone to these fits of unwellness, and I'll prove it. I'd like to call Mr. Baker's father, Frederick Baker Sr., to the stand. This was certainly a shock to the spectators at the trial, but as the room filled with murmuring, Mr. Baker Sr. made his slow, steady way to the stand. As he addressed the crowd, he painted an image of his son that was surprisingly different from the Frederick Baker that the prosecution had described. Frederick was a sickly child. He often complained about headaches. When he was a younger man, we got him a job at a solicitor's office, but he said the work was too much for his head. He was in various clubs. He was even a Sunday school teacher. You know, he goes to church every Sunday. And did this distress of his head ever manifest itself in problematic ways? Well, on more than one occasion, I feared that he might hurt himself. He threatened to take his own life, but he was never much of a drinker. Not until a couple years ago, when a young woman broke his heart. And then he started drinking? I think he may have. And these moods of his, is there precedent for that in your family? There is. We have a cousin who's been committed four times. You could say there's a family history. From the defense's first mention of insanity and throughout his father's testimony, Baker buried his face in his hands and wept. He continued to cry when his sister took the stand and corroborated everything that the father had said. Then, when the Baker's family doctors took the stand, they added that Baker's cousin wasn't the only one in the family with mental health issues. Frederick Sr. had demonstrated bouts of madness and violence. More witnesses were called. Baker's housekeeper said he was always courteous. An old acquaintance said Baker had always been deeply strange. After this testimony was finished, the defense rested with a simple argument. Frederick Baker didn't do it, but if he did, then he needs to be committed, not executed. The courtroom filled with gasps and murmurs. For the spectators, the insanity plea was controversial. In a way, being committed was its own kind of death sentence. Asylums in the 19th century were notorious for the poor treatment of their patients, and many people died under the so-called care of these facilities. But at the same time, commitment to an asylum didn't feel like enough to the spectators in the room. Many people saw the death penalty as the ultimate justice against horrible wrongdoing. That was especially true for people who committed crimes against children, an offense that many believed was worthy of death. After being offered this unexpected new option, the jury retired for deliberation. The insanity plea threw everything into disarray, especially for the people of Alton. The whole town had been vying for Baker's blood for months. He was an outsider who had tainted their community with his brutality. Now there was an air of uncertainty. George Adams held his exhausted wife and muttered a silent prayer for vengeance. After 15 minutes, the jury returned. The jury finds the defendant, Frederick Baker, guilty on all counts. The room erupted into raucous cheering. Carter's face fell. He had done all he could, and still it hadn't been enough. Meanwhile, Baker's face was as impenetrable as a mask. 
It seemed like this decision had turned him stoic and resigned. After all, his fate was sealed. Baker was going to be executed for the murder of Fanny Adams. It didn't take long for the date to be set. Frederick Baker would hang on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1867. The people of Alton anxiously awaited the day, still determined to see Baker killed for his crimes. For them, the weeks could not go by quickly enough. Meanwhile, Baker stewed in his prison cell. All along, he had maintained his innocence. But now that he had been convicted, something shifted inside of him. When the prison chaplain came to his cell, Baker wanted to talk. He considered himself a devout Christian, so he trusted the company of this servant of God. Baker, your days are numbered. You must square yourself away with the Lord. Yes, yes, I confess. I killed the girl. Tell all, Baker. Did you do anything else with the girl? No, I killed her and mutilated her, but, but that's all. I never violated her. Make yourself known to the Lord, Baker. I'd like to... I'd like to write a letter to the family. Baker penned a letter to George and Harriet Adams, confessing to the murder of their daughter. By his own admission, her death had happened exactly as the witnesses said. Baker had approached the three young girls on that fine, hot afternoon. There was a simpleness to children that he enjoyed. So Baker asked if he might join them in picking berries. After some time, he offered Minnie and Lizzie three halfpence to buy sweets, if they'd like. Something to get the girls to leave. At the same time, he gave Fanny some money to stay with him. Fanny was nervous. She didn't want to leave her friends. So Baker picked her up and carried her into the field. Fanny cried for help. Her tears irritated Baker. He couldn't explain it, but the sound made him furious. He wanted the cries to stop. In a sudden burst of energy, he cracked Fanny's skull open with a rock, killing her instantly. Then a strange, cold curiosity came over him. Following the sensation, he began to dissect the girl and spread her body throughout the field. Some of the details of that fateful day were too gruesome for Baker to divulge to the Adams. In his final days, Baker chose to entrust the information to the chaplain instead. That's not all, but I can't tell the girl's parents. I can only tell you. What is it, Baker? I took her heart, and I just held it. I wandered around, lost in a daze, carrying her heart. It was comforting. I only dropped it in a river because I thought I saw someone coming. Dear Heavenly Father, only you can judge this man. This final piece of information was spared from George and Harriet Adams, but Baker's letter did reach them and it seemed to affect the couple deeply. After reading it, George and Harriet claimed that they could forgive Baker for the death of their daughter. But his crimes still deserved his hanging. On the cold morning of December 24, 1867, Frederick Baker was hanged before a crowd of 5,000 
Seeing Baker's lifeless body sway in the wind finally sated the town's need for retribution. In their minds, young Fanny Adams was avenged. The death of Fanny Adams was a scandal that shook England. The gruesome murder of such a young girl horrified families in London and those in small, quiet towns like Alton. The tale even passed to sailors in the Royal Navy, where it garnered an unexpected new meaning. Around that time, tins of mutton were distributed as rations to the sailors. In their dark humor, they took to calling the canned meat, quote, Fanny Adams. Eventually, the name lost its origin, and Fanny Adams became an expression referring to a, quote, sweet nothing. Although Fanny's name had transformed into something very different in England, her memory lives on in the town of Alton. There, the townspeople raised money to erect an ornate headstone for Fanny in the cemetery. On it is inscribed a verse from the Gospel of Matthew, quote, Fear not them which kill the body, but rather him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. The inscription serves as one last eternal slight against Baker. Even in death, it seems, Fanny's memory is forever tied to that stranger who came to Alton and met the town's wrath. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Fanny Adams, amongst the many sources we used, we found Hampshire Murders by Nicholas Sly extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Joseph Bricker, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. It stars Joe Hernandez, Nazee Tarsha, Cameron Nicod, Laith Walshlager, Tiana Camacho, Jen Wong, and Tommy Arseniega. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.